Welcome back, Hemming Brainiacs, for Buttonbrooks Part 10, Chapter 9. Fairly standard funeral chapter, the sequel. Not much to say, really. There was a funeral, it was sad, uh, but didn't really inspire in me at least much of a conversation. Swim says the mama fishy says it was poignant that Frau Iwerson, Thomas's flower shop love from way back when, came and said goodbye. It would have been difficult to put a name to this pale pregnant woman's blurred expression. Finally, she said yes, gave one, just one brief suppressed sob, and turned to go. That is sad. I actually missed that detail. I didn't click for me who that was. There you go. Goodbye, Thomas. Hello, part 11. Down to the last four chapters. We're nearly there. Chapter 1 sounds like this. It sometimes happens that we may recall this or that person whom we have not lately seen and wonder how he is, and then with a start we remember that he has disappeared from the stage, that his voice no longer swells the general concert, that he is in short departed from among us and lies somewhere outside the walls beneath the sod. For our console, Buttonbrook, she that was a stewing, Uncle Gotthold's widow, passed away. Death set his reconciling and atoning seal. Uh, what? Hang on, let me read that again. For our console, Bottombrook, she that was a stewing, Uncle Gotthold's widow, passed away. Death set his reconciling and atoning seal upon the brow of her and who in her life had been the cause of such violent discord. And her three daughters, Friedrich, Henriette, and Fifi, received the condolences of their relatives with an affronted air which seemed to say, You see, your persecutions have at last brought her down to her grave, as if the Frau Consul were not as old as the hills already. And Madame Cathelson had gone to her long rest. In her later years she had suffered much from gout, but she died gently and simply, resting upon a childlike faith, which was much envied by her educated sister, who had always had her periodic attacks of rationalistic doubt, and who, though she grew constantly smaller and more bent, was relentlessly bound by an iron constitution to this sinful earth. Consul Peter Dolman was called away. He had eaten up all his money and finally fell a prey to Hanyadi Janos, leaving his daughter an income of 200 marks a year. He depended upon the respect felt in the community for the name of Dolman to ensure her being admitted into the Order of St. John. Justus Kroger also departed this life, which was a loss. For now, nobody was left to prevent his wife selling everything she owned to send money to the wretched Jacob, who was still leading a dissolute existence somewhere in the world. Christian Buttonbrook had likewise disappeared from the streets of his native city. He would have been sought in vain within her walls. He had moved to Hamburg less than a year after his brother's death, and there he united himself before God and men with Fraulein Aileen Povergel, a lady with whom he had long stood in a close relationship. No one could now stop him. His inheritance from his mother, indeed half the, inherit, half the interest of which had always found its way to Hamburg, was managed by her Stefan Kistenmacher, insofar as it was not already spent in advance. 
though Kirsten Macker in fact had been appointed administrator by the terms of his deceased friend's will. But in all other respects, Christian was his own master. Directly, the marriage became known, Frau Permanida addressed to Frau Aline Bottenbrook in Hamburg a long and extraordinarily violent letter, beginning Madam, and declaring in carefully poisoned words that she had absolutely no intention of recognising as a relative either the person addressed or any of her children. Her Kistenmacher was executor and administrator of the Bottenbrook estate and guardian of little Johann. He held these offices in high regard. They were an important activity which justified him in rubbing his head on the berth with every indication of overwork and telling everybody that he was simply wearing himself out. Besides, he received 2% of the revenues very punctually, but he was not too successful in the performance of his duties, and Gerda Buddenbrook soon had reason to feel dissatisfied. The business was to, was to close, the firm to go into liquidation, and the estate to be settled within a year. This was Thomas Buddenbrook's wish, as expressed in his will. Frau Permanita felt much, res- much upset. And Hanno? Little Johann, what about Hanno? She was disappointed and grieved that her brother had passed over his son and heir and had not wished to keep the firm alive for him to step into. She wept for hours to think that one should dispose thus summarily of that honourable shield, that jewel cherished by four generations of Buddenbrooks, that the history of the firm was now to close while yet there existed a direct heir to carry it on, but she finally consoled herself by thinking that the end of the firm was not after all the end of the family, and that her nephew might as easily, in a new and different career, perform the high task allotted to him, that task being to carry on the family name and add fresh lustre to the family reputation. It could not be in vain that he possessed so much likeness to his great-grandfather. Excuse me. <clears throat> The liquidation of the business began under the auspices of Herr Kistenmarker and old Herr Marcus, and it took a most deplorable course. The time was short, and it must be punctiliously kept to. The pending business was disposed of on hurried and unfavourable terms. On one precipitate and disadvantaged sale, dis- disadvantageous sale followed another. The granaries and warehouses were turned into money, at a great loss, and what was not lost by her Kistenmarker's overzealousness was wasted by the procrastination of old her Marcus. In town they said that the old man, before he left his house in winter, warmed not only his coat and hat, but his walking stick as well. If ever a favourable opportunity arose, he invariably let it slip through his fingers, and so the losses piled up. Thomas Buddenbrook had left on paper an estate of 650,000 marks. A year after the will was opened, it had become abundantly clear that there was no question of such a sum. Indefinite exaggerated rumours of the unfavourable liquidation got about, and were fed by the news that Gerda Buddenbrook meant to sell the great house. Wonderful stories flew about of the reasons which obliged her to take such a step of the collapse of the Buddenbrook fortune, Things were thought to look very badly, and a feeling began to grow up in the town, of which the widowed Frau Senator became aware, at first with surprise and astonishment, and then with growing anger, 
When she told her sister-in-law one day that she had been pressed in an unpleasant way for the payment of some considerable accounts, Frau Pemenita had at first been speechless, and then had burst out into frightful laughter. Gerda Bottenbrook was so outraged that she expressed a half-determination to leave the city forever with little Johan and go back to Amsterdam to play duets with her old father. But this called forth such a storm of protest from Frau Pemanita that she was obliged to give up the plan for the time being. As was to be expected, Frau Pemanita protested against the sale of the house which her brother had built. She bewailed the bad impression it would make and complained of the blow it would deal the family prestige, but she had to grant that it would be folly to continue to keep up the spacious and splendid dwelling that had been Thomas Buddenbrook's costly hobby, and that Gerda's idea of a comfortable little villa outside the wall in the country had, after all, much to commend it. A great day dawned for Siegsmund Gosch, the broker. His old age was illumined by an event so stupendous that for many hours it held his knees from trembling. It came about that he sat in Gerda Buddenbrook's salon in an easy chair opposite her and discussed tete-a-tete the price of her house. His snow-white locks streamed over his face, his chin protruded grimly, he succeeded for once in looking thoroughly hump-backed. He hissed when he talked, but his manners were cold and businesslike, and nothing betrayed the emotions of his soul. He bound himself to take over the house, stretched out his hand, smiled cunningly, and bid 85,000 marks, which was a possible offer, for some loss would certainly have to be taken in this sale. But her Kissenmarker's opinion must be heard, and Gerda Buddenbrook had to let her gosh go without making the bargain. Then, it appeared that her Kistenmarker was not minded to allow any interference in what he considered his prerogative. He mistrusted her gosh's offer. He laughed at it and swore that he could easily get much more. He continued to swear this until at length he was forced to dispose of the property for 75,000 marks to an elderly spinster who had returned from extended travel and decided to settle in the town. Her Kistenmarker also arranged for the purchase of the new house, a pleasant little villa for which he paid rather too high a price, but which was about what Gerda Buddenbrook wanted. It lay outside the castle gate on a chestnut-bordered avenue, and thither, in the autumn of the year 1876, the Frau Senator moved with her son, her servants, and a part of her household goods, the remainder to Frau Permanita's great distress being left behind to pass into the possession of the elderly gentlewoman. As if these were not changes enough, Mamselle Jungmann, after forty years in the service of the Buttonbrook family, left it to return to her native West Prussia, to live out the ev- evening of her life. To tell the truth, she was dismissed by the Frau Senator. This good soul had taken up with little Johann when the previous generation had outgrown her. She had cherished him fondly, read him fairy stories, and told him about the uncle who died of hiccups. But now, little Johann was no longer small. He was a lad of fifteen years, to whom, despite his lack of strength, she could no longer be of much service, and with his mother her relations had not, for a long time, been on very comfortable footing. She had never been able to think of this lady, who had entered the family so much later than herself as a proper Bottenbrook, and of late she had begun, with the freedom of an old servant, to, to arrogate 
to her self-exaggerated authority. She stirred up dissension in the household by this or that encroachment. The position became untenable. There were disagreements, and though Farapamanita made an impassioned plea in her, in her behalf, as for the old house and the furniture, old Ida had to go. She wept bitterly when the hour came to bid little Johan farewell. He put his arms about her and embraced her, then, with his hands behind his back, resting his weight on one leg, while the other poised on the tips of the toes, he watched her out of sight. His face wore the same brooding, introspective look with which he had stood at his father's deathbed, and his grandmother's bier witnessed the heartbreak-breaking up of the great household, and shared in so many events of the same kind, though of lesser outward significance. The departure of old Ida belonged to the same category as other events with which he was already familiar. Breakings up, closings, endings, disintegrations, he had seen them all. Such events did not disturb him. They had never disturbed him. But he would lift his head with the curling light brown hair, inflate one delicate nostril, and it was as if he cautiously sniffed the air about him, expecting to perceive that odour, that strange and yet familiar odour which, at his grandmother's beer, not all the scent of the flowers had been able to disguise. When Frau Permanida visited her sister-in-law, she would draw her nephew to her and tell him of the Buttonbrook family past and of that future for which, next to the mercy of God, they would have to thank little Johan. The more depressing the present appeared, the more she strove to dis- to depict the elegance of the life that went on in the houses of her parents and grandparents, and she would tell Hanno how his great-grandfather had driven all over the country with his carriage and four horses. One day she had a severe attack of cramps in the stomach because Friedrich, Henriette and Fifi had asserted that the Hagenstroms were the creme de la creme of town society. Bad news came of Christian. His marriage seemed not to have improved his health. He had become more and more subject to uncanny, delusion, uncanny delusions and morbid hallucinations, until finally his wife had accepted upon the advice of a physician and had put him into an institution. He was unhappy there and wrote pathetic letters to his relatives, expressive of a fervent desire to leave the establishment where it seemed he was none too well treated, but they kept him shut up. And it was probably the best thing for him. It also put his wife in a position to continue her former independent existence without prejudice to her status as a married woman or to the practical advantages accruing from her marriage. Alright, there's that chapter for you. Um, It really feels like that chapter was the decline part of this book called The Decline of a Family. Like so much just happened in that chapter. Wow. I mean, I guess the catalyst happened in the previous chapters, but the consequence just all seemed to come at once. All right, folks, thank you for listening. See you tomorrow.